0: Welcome to the Audit 15 Fund podcast. My goal with this podcast is to bring relevant internal audit topics to the table at least every 15 days. Today, we're going to be talking about the wire card fraud case and also the parallels between investigative journalism and internal audit. To talk about that topic, I have the honor to have as my guest, Dan McCrum. Dan is part of the Financial Times investigation team. His work includes helping to expose accounting problems at Wirecard, a German payments group, among many other companies. He's the author of the thrilling new book, Money Man, A Hot Startup, A Billion Dollar Fraud, A Fight for the Truth, a book about the Wirecard fraud, which will be released on June 16th in 2022. Thank you, Dan, for being on the podcast. It's an honor to have you on.
1: Thank you, John. Thanks for having me on and that kind introduction.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, uh like, like I mentioned prior to the episode, I'm going to try to draw some parallels between investigative journalism and internal audit. So one of the things uh, that investigative journalists receive are tips, tips from different people. And, you know, specifically to the Wirecard uh, case, you received a, a tip from a head, correct me if I'm wrong, from a hedge fund manager in Australia in 2012. So I have two questions there. Is it mostly through tips that you receive your leads? And what is the process that investigative journalists go through to vet the information that they receive to make sure it's, it's accurate, it's true?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, way, way, way before Wirecard collapsed into, in this huge accounting scandal in Germany, um, I was chatting to this Australian hedge fund manager, a guy, came, a guy called John Hempton. And um, I was interested in frauds at the time. Um, It's sort of the thing that I decided was kind of interesting to write about and, um, you know, looking for dodgy accounting, and not many other journalists were. And so I'd started to get to know a bunch of short sellers, investors who look for companies to bet against, basically. And I'm talking to him and he says, hey, Dan, would you be interested in some German gangsters? I'm like, yeah, of course. And he mentions this funny little company called Wirecard, and it's worth €4 billion, euros, I think, at the time. And he sort of thinks it's a fraud, but he also thinks, you know, it's a payments company. It's a bit like PayPal. But the rumour was that it was involved in all sorts of nasty bits of processing online. You know, I'll leave it to your imagination, but all the bad <laughs> stuff. And, but he didn't have much more to go on than that. He sort of knew enough to sort of add it to the list of companies he thought might be wrong and that was it. So so it was actually a couple of months later, this other hedge fund manager gets in touch and I meet him in a coffee shop and he gets out these sort of dense typewritten notes and he lays out this theory in front of me that this company Wirecard is actually a big accounting fraud. And the simple version of it is he... Wirecard had bought a whole bunch of businesses across Asia, and he looked at what he could find about them in local filings, things like that, and it didn't match what the company was saying in its public statements. It was like, aha, I think there's something funny going on here. And that's the amazing thing about being a journalist, is you get these sort of tips, and uh, the phrase that I, I always use is, stories get stories. Right. So if you write right. about something, people know that you're interested. And so they get in touch and say, hey, here's this. Right. And um, and the way I work, and I did with Wirecard, is I sort of had to take everything he found me and then go off and find the, doc- the underlying documents myself and sort of get comfortable that I could recreate it. And then I would be able to, you know, I do this with any story. You sort of have to get comfortable with the sources, the information, and then you feel like, yeah, I'm in a position... To write something now
0: yeah you're cross-validating the information to make sure so it wasn't just that one initial source that you received you had someone else who came up to you with some more information so just uh, yeah. just building on more information correct
1: yeah because so if he had you know if i it ever been out of the blue we would have spent time going what's wirecard why is that interesting but because another guy i knew who was pretty smart had mentioned it you're like ah that name again. I know that name. <laughs> right. So uh, ring a bell. So the initial
0: tip that you received was in 2012. And then the initial report that the Financial Times published on Wirecard was in 2015. And if I you know, was looking at the timeline, I think in 2017, there are Cash position started to improve a little bit. Their share price started to go up. Was there any point during the investigation, during this process that you're getting information from sources that you're like kind of questioning yourself, like, am I getting this right? You know, like maybe, maybe there isn't fraud there. And, you know, was there any point in time that you question yourself?
1: Yeah. So, um, I mean, a whole lot of stuff happened. And the, um, and every time something new and weird happened, it sort of increased my um, conviction that there was something really wrong at this company. Um, so, so to give you an example, the um, I work with this editor, Paul Murphy, very old school journalist. Um, he's been around a long time, and um, and so we start writing about work. I'd write a bunch of stories, and then. Um, these, other, these short sellers appear and they put forward the other theory. So I've been writing about accounting fraud. They pop up, publish this big paper saying, actually, no, okay, maybe there's some accounting fraud, but no, back on the money laundering. It's a big money laundering enterprise. Um, do you remember when poker was made illegal in the States? Um, and basically their argument was Wirecard never stopped processing payments for online poker. And the US Department of Justice was going to come down on them hard. So that was the theory, at least. And when they published it, it crashed the share price. And it was at that point that all these sort of dirty tricks, which eventually kind of turned my life upside down, start to begin.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, and so we're sort of watching this, trying to work out what's happening. And suddenly... Um, one of my boss's secret sources, like a, you know, a habitual stock market trader who's a bit of a gossip, who actually runs one of the largest nightclubs in London called Fabric. <laughs> so not your normal sort of, you know, right, stock right. market trader. Yeah. They've known each other for years, but never mentioned it in public. He suddenly gets in touch and he's like, hey, Paul, um, I've got this guy who wants to talk to you. It's about a company called Wirecard, I think. Um, He's the uh, chief operating officer. Oh, wow. What is going on? You know, normal companies have like PR teams or expensive PR consultants. Right. They don't get the local nightclub owner to come and knock on your door. (laughs) Yeah, have a chat. So it was was stuff like that, which kind of made us go, huh, this is really weird. And And then, you know, then we start to, you know, we realize hackers are involved. At one point, you know, a bunch of people's correspondences splashed up online, sort of dressed up as this conspiracy. Um, some of the, those short sellers, they start realising people are following them around. One of them claims he's been menaced by some thugs.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, and so through that period, it was sort of, I never doubted that there was something very wrong about what you know, everything added up to these guys are crooks. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, but what I did doubt was that I'd be able to convince anyone. I see. Because the, because the really weird thing was, so start of 2017, you've had these two big theories put out there counting fraud, dirty money. And The auditor's EY sign off on the accounts. So no accounting fraud, right? And then, (laughs) well, I mean, we can come to that. Um, And then the German stock market regulator, Baffin, comes out with announcements. It's launching an investigation, but not into Wirecard, into those short sellers who went after it for market manipulation. So clearly there's nothing to that money laundering side of things either, because otherwise the authorities would do something right. So at that point I kind of gave up. I was like, well, I mean, I talk about it in the book. It's, it's very much my own story. And I, you know, I had two young children. I was trying to build a house yeah. and I was actually supposed to be doing a completely different job at the newspaper and was sort of doing all of them badly. So I was, I was kind of like, ah, uh, yeah. If nobody wants to listen on this wirecard card thing, then there's lots of other stories out there. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean, I think it takes takes a lot of courage to come out with, you know, with, as a whistleblower, to come out with the reports to, uh, you know, like you mentioned, their their reaction was strong, right? Whenever some news came out about the company, you'd have, you know, some random person, like, try to reach out to you that wasn't a PR person from the company. So, uh, one thing is, like, how do you guys, investigative journalists, go about the process of, like, you know, making sure that people feel comfortable going to you that you know they can they can trust you as you know you guys are a trusted source for those whistleblowers is that would you consider that one of the hardest parts of your job as an investigative journalist
1: yeah because you know whistleblowers are the most important thing and like one of the most amazing things about being a journalist is suddenly out of a clear blue sky someone will get in touch and you have to um you know, reassure them that you're going to protect their identity, you're going to um, see the story through, and you're going to uh, make sure it's done properly. And so, I mean, Wirecard is actually a very good example because um, when is it? September, September 2018. So Wirecard has just joined the DAX index of you know, the 30 biggest listed companies in the country. And, and it's at that moment that I get this email from a whistleblower in Singapore. Except it turns out it's not actually the whistleblower, it's his mother. And her son was a lawyer inside Wirecard's Asian headquarters. And he had discovered that a guy on the finance team there was cooking the books whole bunch of really weird amateur little frauds, you know, backdating contracts, Mm -hmm. you know. They were, you know, two million euros sent out of the company for a market research report on the Malaysian payments industry, which no one else knew anything about. out about, you know, weird little stuff like that. And what happened was they did this investigation, realized they're up to no good, but when they reported it to headquarters in Munich, Mm the whole thing was squashed and this lawyer was forced out and his mum was not going to let them get away with it. I mean, she's this amazing woman. She, um, so she's, she was a sort of a Sikh immigrant in Singapore.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, so she was forced into an arranged marriage with this terrible alcoholic husband. And so she had her son, Pav,
0: mm-hmm.
1: kicked him out, and then raised him herself, whilst also training and then becoming a banker. And so, you know, she used to take him on business trips around Asia with her because she had no one else to look after him. And so, she was not going to let them do that to her son. So she gets in touch, and um, I go to meet Pav in this hotel in Singapore. And he's very nervous, you know, like he's picking things off the table, passing him backwards and forwards between his hands. He's and he's got this sort of like angry. Determined, nervous air about it, and he's sort of he, he's sort of my age, like mid forties, a little bit younger, maybe, but with a shock of grey hair. Uh-huh. And so we're talking, and we're talking, and um, and I'm trying to suss him out as well, because you know he sent me some amazing documents already that I'm like, this is we're inside now, this is the big break I've been waiting for. But you're still like, is he for real? What's his agenda? Right, and so. My advice would be, if you ever want someone to gain someone's trust, bring your mother to the meeting. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So, go uh, wrong with so we're chatting away, and Then his mum comes and joins us for lunch and, uh, and she's there going, you know, you've got to protect my son. You can't let them get away with this and all of this thing. And so I think I passed that test. You know, I passed the mother <laughs> test.
0: Right. Right. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. Pav Gil. Yeah. I think uh, Wirecard. Fought back on, uh, on the claims that he had, and also on your claims, right? Yeah. So, like, like, like you mentioned before, uh, including personal attacks. You know, they try to, they, you know, they sent uh, phishing emails to you and your family, if I'm not mistaken. So, uh, can you provide some examples of what they did? Uh, and was there any point, like you mentioned, you you have a family, trying to raise a family. Was there any point you're like? OK, I'm, I'm done with this. I'm not going to
1: continue doing this. So so what Wirecard did, which was in some ways quite diabolical, but it was also in other ways quite stupid. And I'll explain. What they did is, so I went and took all this information, which I got from the whistleblower, get ready, and we published a story. And it's a, it's a relatively contained story. This guy in Singapore was cooking the books and he was investigated. That hasn't been fired. And if they had been smart, what they they would have done is said, yes, you're right. You got us. Small little bit of local bother. The investigation's ongoing and we're dealing with it. But, yeah, we're going to fire everyone and clear house. Instead, what they did is they totally denied the story, no truth to it whatsoever. And then they accused me and my colleague of basically leaking the story to some market speculators beforehand, and were trying to manipulate the Wirecard share price. This, this excuse that they'd used again and again, which had right, worked. Right. The German authorities had bought it. Right. But what it did was they basically said the Financial Times story was rubbish, and we were corrupt. And that meant that we couldn't walk away from it. That we had to see it through to the end, and that we could prove that no, no, it's this company which is wrong. Mm-hmm. And so, so that meant that I, you know my whole career became tied up in this one story. You know, was I was I a corrupt right. guy who was up to no good, or was I like a, just a genuine investigative journalist? And. And so while this is happening, you know, we know WireCard uses private detectors. We know they use hackers. And after a couple of these stories have gone out, my sort of my editor Paul Murphy takes me aside and he's like, Yeah, Dan, that there's something I've been meaning to tell you. Um, yeah, we need to have a conversation away from the phones. Because we'd been very careful about phones anyway at this point. You know, whenever it was an important meeting, we'd all put our phones in another room, just in case. Mm-hmm. And he's like, we need to have one inside the building, no electronics anywhere nearby. And so we go in and he's like, yeah, so this guy, Jan Marsalek, one of the main bad guys. Um, so he's been, he seems to have some sort of Russian connection. He's been showing these documents around to us speculators in London. He seems to be trying to impress them. And they're top secret, and they've got the recipe for the Russian nerve gas Novichok. Oh wow! Oh, wow. <laughs> um, which was relevant because there'd been a whole poisoning incident in the UK using Novichok, and this yeah. was the this was the top secret investigation into that thing oh, wow. with the comments from Russia on it. And so at that point, we're like, "Uh, wait—is Russia involved? Is this company protected?" What's going on? And at that point, you just I I just became completely paranoid. You know, I'd sort of have right. visions of being knocked off my bike as I cycled home at night. You know, I would you know, I wouldn't stand near the edge of the train platform while I was waiting for a train. It was that sort of paranoia about ah, oh, we've and we've uh upset some pretty serious guys here. And um, yeah, and that was the moment when yeah i really started to worry about like is it worth it have i Mm -hmm. got myself into deep you know is there a risk to me is a risk to my family Mm -hmm. yeah those were some like some of the darker moments
0: yeah yeah i i mean but you kept going and it's a good thing that you kept going uh and you, you mentioned a uh, you know uh, a few moments ago about EY signing off on the statements from uh, Wirecard, and they were their auditors for close to ten years, if not more than ten years. So, in your opinion, you know, to the internal auditors who are listening to the episode here, in your opinion, why do you think EY got us so wrong?
1: This is a really interesting question. I'm glad to talk to you know someone with like that very internal audit speciality about this because it's really hard to fathom isn't it but at the same time <laughs> i suspect you might have a clue about how it works because what i've kind of learned right writing the book about this is you know there are some ways which auditors op- operate and one of the things is you don't typically doubt management right right you know if 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 management it says this is black you don't go oh, hang on a second, should we check whether it's actually white? You you know, there are things that you check in a slightly formalized or agreed manner, but you're basically believing what the company is telling you. And so why can't use that quite effectively, you know, I think, you know, it's a problem if someone is just flat out lying to you.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And and so, you know, there's a couple of key moments. Like there's, um, I mean... One of the fun things in the book was sort of laying out how one of the frauds took place, because there are a whole series. And there's this India deal where this sort of um, crazy English businessman character sort of waddles into the scene. And he's like this really boisterous party guy who sort of doesn't take any nonsense. And what I was able to get was the internal chat transcripts of uh-huh. him and his sort of accomplices organizing the whole deal they used i don't know if you're familiar with slack or yes. um, you know those sorts. so they were using like a slack like
0: uh-huh. bit of
1: software to do it and you can see them all talking about doing it and giving instructions and and it's fascinating to see it from that side um, and you know it, and it all works and they pull it off And then the auditors start to get suspicious. So EY sends its fraud team in to investigate. And Wirecard stonewalls them. Says We're far too busy with the the real audit. We don't have time to give you all the stuff you need for that. So they basically don't give them anything until the last minute. Mm -hmm. Then they give them a whole load of documents. And I think the... The, the fraud team are still really suspicious. They're like, this doesn't add up. We've had it like a, it's prompted by a whistleblower inside EY. Yeah. And, but what they do is everything gets broken down into individual issues. So, you know, I've seen the spreadsheets. There'll be like a whole load of, you know, open items, closed items. And it's yeah. like this. It's like, you know, so this seven million euro contract with a Pakistani company whose business address is a P.O. Box in Dubai. Yeah. Um, that that like seven million lift to sales added right at the last moment. Do you have a copy of that contract? <laughs> What's going on there? It's stuff like that, which you can see. And they're sort of, you know, going, oh, we don't actually have any of these documents. And um, and what they do is they basically write a whole load of sort of essentially letters from the management just hmm. going, don't worry, I know this customer. They're good sorts and I'll definitely pay their bills. Yeah. And... A, 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 And one of, I mean, one of the brilliant things about about the whole investigation that was really fun is I I sat in this room inside the FT for about two months, um, literally going through these email inboxes, which had been given by the whistleblower. So I could sort of just watch this unfold in real hand, just real time, just like follow these things happening. So you have EY sending questions, what are we doing? And then on the other side, them talking about it, going, oh, have you got that stuff? Sort of <laughs> um And so you could sort of see the scramble to get the audit done. And it's always done at the last minute. Everyone's yes. under pressure. They're like, come on, we've got to sign it off. And then we go, here you go, that's enough. And EY are like, okay, fine. And, and then there's really intriguing bits where there's not correspondence because there's just like calendar entry. So they all go and have a meeting together. Mm-hmm. And then they come out of it, and and so there's these series of meetings, and there's this moment where, so the so. So there's this Indonesian guy. This is the, mm. this is the one who who our whistleblower found mm-hmm. was cooking the books. Mm-hmm. It's called a uh, Ido Kurniawan, and yes. he's really young. He's like, so he's in charge of the finance team for almost half the company, mm-hmm. at the age of. 30, and he's got his cv has basically nothing on it um so immediately suspicious and the main bad guy has realized he's quite a good gopher who can get things done and he flies around constantly like um like he's this sort of workaholic who's desperate to please and he talks about cleaning up other people's messes oh wow and uh, and he starts dressing like um, like the the bad guys a very snappy dresser, and so he starts copying his style. And you know he really you know he really wants to get things done for them. He's you know the joke inside the company was that um, he was still sending messages on his Blackery whilst he was in the delivery room with his wife. <laughs> they have like a newborn baby while this whole frantic order is going on, and then he basically in the messages he suddenly goes, oh, my God, I don't believe it. EY have signed off. Oh, I don't wow. really understand it. They were making so much difficulty, and now everything has cleared. Yeah. So even the guy who was involved in some of the bad stuff didn't really understand why EY had suddenly come round. There you um, go. But, but the other thing that I'd say as well is um, – You know, you can see it in when they're, you know, because later the allegations become much larger and the issues are much more serious. And an EY does two things. It breaks everything down into these individual issues. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So have we, can we tick this box tick? Can we tick this box ticks? And it doesn't tick all of them. And what it fails to do is sort of step back, tear off the blindfolds and look at the whole elephant. There you go. Um, and I think that is, you know, that is a really key just sort of institutional approach or, you know, I feel like just nobody took the responsibility to say there are all of these, there's this swirl of issues around this company. Yeah. Um, what is going on here? Yeah. I think that's a great takeaway for
0: internal auditors. I, there's a saying that some people say, you know, you're, counting the ants while the elephant is walking by. So <laughs> is a,
1: I'm, I'm going to steal that.
0: <laughs> so I, I mean that I think your example of like just having the individual issues and, you know, ticking the box and instead of like taking a step back and look at the big picture. Right. So that's a great, great takeaway for internal auditors who are listening to the episode. I, Really, really appreciate your time on the podcast. Then, uh, for those who are interested in learning more about the book that will be published uh, within within a week or so, uh, what's the best way for them to contact
1: you? So I'm on Twitter at fd, um, which is a very easy way to follow me, or um, LinkedIn uh, Dan McCrum. Um, and yeah, I'm you know I'm a Financial Times journalist, so. Um, If you don't subscribe, why not? It's an excellent newspaper. And the book is going to be out in the UK um, next week on June 16. Um, It is out already in Germany in translation due to the strangeness of the publishing industry. But that's great. The Germans love it. rave reviews so far uh reads like a thriller they say they're fine i think they're glad that someone has finally made sense of the whole thing for them and hopefully in america if um um there should be a release date hopefully in the autumn okay sounds good really appreciate your time thank you so much dan thank you for having me on john appreciate it